Many, many years ago, when I was um, young and fit and athletic and played football, uh, we got on a fishing boat from the island that I lived on to go to another island. Uh, we had a steam about, when I say steam, it was a diesel engine, but you know, it's a nautical term. We, we had to steam for about two hours to get to the other island. We played football, and just as, as the match was coming to an end, uh, a thick mist began to settle down uh, over Orkney. And we got on the fishing boat that had no GPS satellite navigation system. Uh, it didn't even have a radar. Uh, the fisherman had an echo sounder, and for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, it, it roughly shows him where at least the ocean bed is, but no more information than that. It sends out a little pulse and a little beep comes back. tells you how far away the ocean bed is. Uh, he had some charts and he had a compass. Uh, but more than all of that, he had knowledge of the waters and the tides and the winds and the islands. And so we trusted him to get us safe home. And we uh, steamed again for a good two hours in absolute thick pea soup fog. Couldn't hardly see from one end of the boat, which was only a short fishing boat, to the other. And after we'd been going for several hours, by this time, all of the footballers. We had absolutely no idea where we were. We could have been heading to Norway or, or America for all we knew. Um, and then the, the, the skipper said to one of my mates, he said, look, from my reckoning, we're not far away from the harbor of our island. And, and there's a navigation buoy just at the mouth of the harbor. Now, would one of you go right up to the bow, and just in case we weren't nautical literate, he said, that's the sharp end of the ship. But one of you go right up to the bow and see if you can spot the navigation buoy. Well, my friend went up there, and within about two to three minutes, we actually brushed the side of the navigation buoy as we steamed into the harbor. And why did I tell you that story? It was to get your attention, first of all, but it's also to illustrate a point. You know, you, if you're a Christian... You have placed your hands, your life, sorry, into the hands of God. You've placed your destiny, your eternal destiny, into the hands of the God who said, I will get you safe home. And maybe like we had to for that two-hour trip, um, we had absolutely no sighting of land. We had no idea where we were going. We, we just only had to trust the skipper. And maybe your circumstances in life just now are such that you just cannot make sense of where you're at in this journey with your God who has said, I'll take you safe home. Maybe there are all sorts of things, perilous things, as there were for us that Saturday evening. Islands, <laughs> rocks, other shipping, all sorts of things that could have gotten in the way, but we were trusting the skipper to get us home. And tonight, maybe there's a message here for for you, as we look at the life of Joseph, trusting God's hidden plan, whether trusted or betrayed. In our first sermon a couple of Sunday evenings ago, we looked at the life of Joseph, and we considered his early years as Jacob's favorite son working on the family farm, where because of his popularity with his dad, it had made him the envy and the hatred of his oldest, older brothers, resulted in him being sold as a slave down into Egypt, where we picked up the story tonight. And tonight we're going to discover, or try to discover, something more of the training that God was directing behind the scenes, unseen in Joseph's experience, 
as he was preparing him to become the second most powerful ruler in the world. This is a slave boy. This is, this is incomprehensible from a human perspective that a slave boy is being trained through all his hardships to become the second most powerful ruler in the world. And not only that, more importantly, he's to become a savior to his family, even the people who have done him in. He's to become their savior. And he's to become the savior to a nation as well. His qualifications uh, for this role were not the result of theoretic scholastic study. No, Joseph's education was the result of many hard lessons in the university that is called life. So in chapter 39, we see him trusted and promoted. His father Jacob, his earthly father, had tried to fast-track Joseph into a place of leadership and authority without first having allowed him to gain the experience and wisdom uh, in the disciplines and the skills of his work. Um, I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a position where... um, As a junior member of staff, you've had to train someone who's going to become your superior. Uh, It can be very frustrating that that you think, wait a minute, I'm spending and investing a lot of my time uh, training someone who's going to become my boss. Uh, That can be, um, that can grate a little bit. You have to stay very humble whenever that happens. But here we have a situation where uh, Joseph's not even being trained. He's just simply given the responsibility to lead and to take authority in the family. Not ambitious plans by his father Jacob. But God also had greater and more ambitious plans for Joseph. But unlike his earthly father, his divine parent knew that Joseph could never be a good ruler or overseer until he had first learned how to be a servant. But Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25 where the master is rewarding those that he has entrusted to look after his property and his work. His business, and, and Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Warren Wearsby, uh, a pastor, American pastor and a Bible commentator, suggests that God used three disciplines in Joseph's life to prepare him to become the second in command of Egypt. And so I'm uh, attributing to Warren uh, these three points. And uh, I doubt if he ever listens in, but thank you. It's, uh, I couldn't do it better myself. That's why I've borrowed them. First of all, the discipline of service. Then secondly, the discipline of self-control. And then thirdly, the discipline of suffering. So first of all, the discipline of service in verses 1 through 6. Joseph had to give up the luxury of his richly ornamented robe. Uh, See that in Genesis 37, verse 3, when it's pulled off him by his brothers. And he's exchanged it for a slave's tunic. He would have to learn how to work. He's going to have to learn to be totally accountable to and work under the authority of his master. Now, all of this might seem a little bit harsh to us, but What I want you to hold on to is the truth that this is all part of God's hidden plan to make a real man out of Joseph. F.B. Mayer says, Though stripped of his coat, 
he had not been stripped of his character. When you become a Christian, um, God never ever changes your character in the sense of your personality, but he does grow you and mature you to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. God's servants are humble men and women. And as such, they have to learn submission to those in authority over them. It's an established principle in the kingdom of God. Uh, And Joseph learned humility and importance of being orders. Uh, Peter, the apostle, says in his letter, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because... Here's a very good reason. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up. And I've underlined, in due time. And that posed the question for me as I thought about that this week. When is due time? How long do we have to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand? How long do we have to put up with that which may seem to be just now too an oppressive form of correction and training for us? How long is due time? Well, I think it depends primarily on the sovereign purposes and will of God. I think that we may influence it in some ways depending on how stubborn uh, we are in being trained in righteousness. But when is due time? I think it differs for every individual. Moses was 80 years old when God called him to head down to Egypt to lead his people away from Pharaoh and slavery. So that was, if you like, Moses's finest hour. 80 years old, became a great leader. For Robert Murray McShane, he was only 29 years old when he died, having led a church in Dundee, seen many hundreds of people profess Christ as their Savior, and done an amazing work among the poor of that city, as well as writing uh, extensively. In fact, we're still using his Bible reading plan in our church this year and next. So, brother or sister in Christ, take heart and be encouraged and wait patiently. Our times, our destinies, and our work are in God's hands. Remember that quote that we looked at a couple of weeks ago from R.W. Moss. I put it up this week for you because some of you were taking notes last couple of weeks ago and didn't get it. Uh, a very high place must be given Joseph among the early founders of his race. In strength of right purpose, he was second to none, whilst in graces of reverence and kindness, of insight and assurance, he became the type of faith that is at once personal and national and allows neither misery nor a career of triumph to eclipse the sense of divine destiny. He became the type of faith that is at once personal and national and allows neither misery nor a career of triumph to eclipse the sense of divine destiny. That's why I've given a subtitles to our theme for sermon, looking at Trusting God's hidden plan, whether you're loved or whether you're loathed. It doesn't matter how people respond to you if you're trusting God. You're not reliant either from a negative or a positive perspective on how people are going to speak about you, how they're going to treat you, how they're going to respond to you if your security is in God. And next week we're going to look at, uh, God willing, uh, still trusting that 
divine sovereign purpose of God, whether we're vilified or we're vindicated. Because Joseph was faithful in the small things, God promoted him to the greater things. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a man skilled at his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. Proverbs 12 and 24. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. And then Jesus speaking in Luke 16 and verse 10 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little will also, can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And so we too can have, as Christians, a type of faith that neither allows misery or a career of triumph to eclipse the sense of divine destiny God has set before us. But it requires the discipline further of self-control. Verses 7 through 18. Uh, We're told that Joseph's mother was a beautiful woman. You can read um, that in Genesis 29, verses 16 through 17. Um, Actually, as I went to read this, I thought, you know, if you're one of the two girls, uh, Leah or Rachel, um, you probably won't like the way that the Bible has recorded this little brief statement. I I hadn't picked this out before, but it slightly amused me, and I trust it does you as well. Uh, It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. And and here's the description that's set in the Bible for eternity about the difference between these two girls. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. (laughs) Poor Leah. She's the one with the specs, yeah. Well, they didn't have them then, but you know, it's two girls. Rachel is lovely in form and beautiful, the Bible says. So Rachel's son must have inherited her features and apparently was a bit of a looker himself. Now, I'm not the person to consult about what makes a good-looking guy. I really have no idea. Um, Egyptian women were not best known for their faithfulness. And so um, at some point in, in his service for Mr. Potiphar... Mrs. P gets sighting of him and rather fancies him. Now, as we read there together, wasn't she persistent? This was a woman who just wasn't going to take no for an answer. The episode that we read about, or Graham read to us, probably takes place over the course of many months, if not years. This woman has got her sights fixed on this good-looking guy, and she's going to get him, come what may. There's a lot of wisdom to be gained, I think, in a close study um, and meditation on this section about resisting temptation, but we don't have time to do that fully tonight. But please note, um, young men or young women, that Mrs. P's behavior has got nothing whatsoever to do with love or affection. There is, of course, an element of sexual desire, but more than anything, from what I can read, This is a woman who is simply a power freak. She's a real manipulator who, when she can't get her own way, makes sure that Joseph pays for spurning her attention. Many, many years ago, the late Selwyn Hughes, teaching in his discipleship classes, tells particularly young men, but in the hearing of young women, that lust cannot wait to get while love will always wait to give. 
And faced with this sort of invitation, there are not many guys strong enough to resist. But if you're ever in such a predicament, then please do what Joseph does. Leg it. He wouldn't have known at the time, but you see, with hindsight, we know that God was testing Joseph. For if Joseph could not control himself as a servant, he could never be trusted to control others as a ruler. Like so many of today's generation, he could easily have convinced himself. Nobody will know. Or everybody does it. Well, the truth is, not everybody does it. And um, it's, you know, it's a tragedy, but I, the subtleties of the lust of the flesh is that particularly the young man, but sometimes the young woman says, everybody does it. If you love me, of course you'll sleep with me. And if you're a Christian, young man or woman, if you really love your girlfriend or fiancé, if you really love, then you're going to wait. Lust can't wait to get, but love will always wait to give. And Joseph shows us the picture of somebody who is, instead of living to please himself, he's living to please God. Let me just try the microphone here. I think it's a bit slack there. Okay? Thanks. Instead of living to please himself, he lived to please God and made a point to make no provision for the flesh. In Romans 13 and 14, Paul says, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And that same Paul, writing to his protege that we were listening, hearing about this morning, uh, to Timothy, says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they will produce quarrels. Flee the evil desires of youth, Paul admonished Timothy. And that's just exactly what we see Joseph doing here. And again, we get something in a picture, don't we, uh, of what the 17th century poet William Congreve meant when he wrote these famous words, "'Heaven hath no rage like love to hatred turned.'" nor hell a fury of a woman scorned. Joseph may have freed himself from the clutches of his temptress, but he still had to suffer because of the venom that spewed from her lying tongue. Now, many commentators, and I've got some sympathy with this, that uh, when she tells her story to her husband, that Mr. P isn't fully convinced by his unfaithful wife's version of events. You see, he's, we're told, a chief official in Pharaoh's uh, army. Um, it can also be read that he's the chief executioner. And somebody who just can put a man or a woman to death without even batting an eyelid would surely just draw his sword and run this unworthy slave through at such an accusation of rape and sexual harassment. But instead he puts him into prison. So what's that about? Is he not quite, not quite convinced by his woman's lies? Do you know, as I th think about this, I want us to pause and reflect, just for your sake and for mine. A friend of mine recently in his church did a survey, and uh, he asked people, uh, anonymously of course, 
but he asked people to, to fill in the survey to say, um, what areas of life do they struggle with? And uh, it called for a great deal of honesty, and the, and the findings were quite stark, and um, particularly of those that, that could be identified either as male or female. That was the only identification that there was. Most of the guys, the huge majority of the guys, wrote in to say that something that they did struggle with in life, even as Christians, was the whole area of sensual um, temptation. 73% of them. And, uh, of course, you and I know that the 27%, which is lying, because um, it's every man's battle. And the thing is, it's every woman's battle as well, to face temptation. So without putting your hands up and offering an answer, what is the greatest temptation that you face? What's the greatest temptation that you face? And what's your plan to be victorious at the times when you're tempted? In our pastoral care education program here in Charlotte Chapel, we, we look at this, staying safe and avoiding the enemy's snares, thinking of the three main areas of temptation as being sex, money, and power. Or as a friend of mine in New Zealand has it, gals, gold, and glory. He likes to alliterate. Oh, just in case you think you're away with it, it's, it's gals, guys, gold, or glory. Because we all face temptation. Sex is a temptation. It's the temptation of sensual pleasure. Now, we may not be engaging in the game of fatal attraction at the level that Mrs. P tried to snare Joseph with. But each one of us, not one of us in this room, can stand outside this. All of us are capable of succumbing to sensual temptations of others, or by using our charms or flirtations to get our own way with others. Money is the, third, the second one, the temptation to get rich. And this can be a very real temptation, uh, where there is a will, there's a way in all that. You and I need to discern any areas in our lives where there could be a conflict of interest in any area of temptation in regard to wealth. It might be to do with the job that we're taking. It might be to do with what we're prepared to put up with in order to see promotion come our way. Would we lie, for instance, for our company, for our boss? Would we work at something that's not quite ethical? simply because it provides us with a job. We may not be uh, able to be easily tempted sensually, but a healthy bank balance and nice things in the home may be more of a snare than we're prepared to realize. And the third area that the devil tries to tempt us with is power, which, of course, is really just the temptation to control. It's a much more subtle temptation than sex or money. You see, all of us like to be liked. And all of us have something inherent in us that causes us that we need to be needed. And it's so easy to fall into the trap that, that we and, and we alone are so important to others that they can't do without us or that we can't do without them. And that has something to do with controlling or being controlled. We might easily say 
none of us are indispensable. But do we really believe that? Do you really believe that? Easy to say, very hard to really believe at times, especially when others may indicate that they won't know what they would do without us. Now, this may be intended to be realistic praise, but sadly, it can be the subtle lever that cracks open that part of our human personality, our sinful human personality, that yearns for power and control. Now, in all of these three and others, remember that to be tempted is not to sin. To be tempted is not sin. Jesus himself was tempted in every way as you and I are, yet was without sin. And he was without sin because he never, even for a moment, allowed temptation to gain access into his mind where he played with it. Proverbs 25 and 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. And I've put in brackets alongside that in my notes, in any area of his or her life. And what you and I need to be aware of is that any, any weakness in our defense against the enemy, against temptation, where the walls could come down, where there are any gaps, the enemy will keep on pushing away at them. He will eventually find a way in. Many, many years ago, I was preaching um, on the whole area of temptation, and I said something to the effect of, you know, no one ever got up one morning in a happy marriage situation and decided that day, on a spur of the moment, that they were going to commit adultery and wreck their marriage. No one ever did that. And then I added, most adulterous relationships start with an inappropriate cup of coffee. Know your weaknesses, brothers and sisters, in Christ. And don't have the cup of coffee that's inappropriate. Don't spend time with someone that you shouldn't spend time with. Don't be alone with a person you should never be alone with. Know your weaknesses. You might not know them, but the enemy does, and he will exploit them eventually, sooner or later. Self-control is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is really good news for us because most of us don't have any self-control at all within our human makeup, or very little. So here's some really good news for us. Galatians 5, 22, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what we lack, God will give us as a gift if we'll but ask Him and allow His Holy Spirit to work in us. We can't master the weakness of our human flesh by ourselves, so God grants us the power to be self-controlled through the reception of His Holy Spirit. Now, there's a mystery here because Joseph didn't have the Holy Spirit with him in the same way that Christians have the Holy Spirit with them post-Pentecost. But yet, we read several times that the Lord was with him. And the question has to be posed. When God is for you, who can be against you? No one. And by God's grace and His enabling strength, we can control our human appetites, whether for the sensual 
whether for the materialistic or whether for the control and the power. We can have all of that brought under the control of God's Spirit. And the third thing that is in the discipline for Joseph's university life is the discipline of suffering. The evidence that he was able to keep his whole body and its appetite in check is testified to by the measure by which he's able to control his tongue. Um, You might think it's another part of your body, an organ, that's the most difficult to control, but the human tongue is the most difficult part of our body to control. James 3 and 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. James 3 and 6, The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Observe that Joseph didn't argue when he's arrested and he's thrown into prison unjustly. And neither did he expose the lie that Potiphar's wife was spreading about him. And you need to take real encouragement if you've grown in Christ to the degree that you're maturing so that you can guard your tongue and control what you say about and what you say to others. I'm not known for being one of the most subtle guys in the world. But can I just say to you, just in case there's any mistaking, gobbiness and an unbridled tongue is not a spiritual gift any more than it's becoming of someone who claims to be a Christian. A lady comes to our pastor one day and says, um, I think that the gift that the Holy Spirit has given to me is one of being critical of the elders in this church. To which he replies, Madam, I think that's one talent the Lord wouldn't mind you burying. A friend of mine actually pastored a church where this woman who had had a charismatic experience said that her gift was one of criticism. What a piece of absolute nonsense and poppycock absolute nonsense. And the way that you and I use our tongues is an indicator just of how godly we are or how ungodly we are. Jesus himself says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you're angry, when you fire off, when you're negative, and you say, I don't know where that came from, It came from you. It came from your sorry, sad, sick, sinful heart. And you too can use words to come in repentance and say, God, I'm sorry. Joseph didn't defend himself, and neither will the bold, maturing Christian. Note that it's because the Lord is with Joseph. That's the key to his success. And Joseph had to suffer as a prisoner for at least two years and probably longer. And Psalm 105, verses 17 through 20, explains the reason for the suffering. I haven't put this up on the screen, so maybe you want to turn to Psalm 105, would you? In your Bibles, middle of the Bible, open at the Psalms. Psalm 105, verse 17. 
This is the Old Testament hymn book where, as part of the Psalm, verse 17 of Psalm 105, they sing about Joseph's experience in Egypt. And so he sent, that's God, sent a man before them. Joseph sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. F.B. Mayer uh, points out that verse 18 has a striking alternative reading in the Hebrew. It can mean this. His soul entered into iron, which could equally be remembered, iron entered his soul. I want you to think about that. Iron entered his soul. Mayer goes on to say, is there not truth in this, that sorrow and privation, the yoke born in youth, are conducive to an iron tenacity and framework of a noble character? Do not flinch from suffering. Bear it silently, patiently, resignedly, and be assured that it is God's way of infusing iron into your spiritual makeup. Joseph learned patience from his suffering. So far as Joseph was concerned, it helped make a man out of him. Some years ago, there were two elderly ministers listening to a young minister preach. And uh, the one said, he's good, isn't he? And the other one said, yes, he is good, but there's just something, something not quite there yet. Can't quite put my finger on it. And the wiser of the two old guys looked at the young man, and then they turned to each other as the older reflected, he's a good preacher. It's just that he's not been crucified enough. Brother or sister in Christ, never shy away from the path of suffering that God can take you down to refine you and to hone you and to make you more usable in his work. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you be, may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hebrews 6 and 12 says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Although the suffering was not enjoyable, Please, don't, don't read that from what I'm saying. Don't put on a silly, grimy, grimace face that says, the suffering is wonderful. It's not. It's horrible. It's hard. It's difficult. But the joy of the Lord can still be yours. It's not enjoyable, but it was necessary. And one day for Joseph, it turned into glory, but not yet because it was not the due time. And then very, very quickly, I want to head on just a couple of things from Genesis 40. Because he's betrayed and he's forgotten. And he goes from riches to rags again. He's been the main man in Potiphar's household, and now he's a prisoner held in an inhumane condition in a place described in the original language as a merciful hole. You see, it sounds rather grand in the, in the NIV, doesn't it? He's put in the royal prison. <laughs> yes, I was a prisoner um, in Egypt, but I was held in the royal prison, you know. <laughs> No, it's a hole. It's a dungeon. It's a horrible place. But it's Joseph's home for at least two years. Now, we could forgive him, couldn't we, for caving in at this point and just giving up. 
Uh, the reason that we could do that is because we're not God, but neither are we men and women in the spiritual caliber of Joseph. He simply grasps the opportunity of his misery and puts into practice some of the stuff that he's been learning in the university of life. He has the promise of unfulfilled dreams, and the Lord is still with him even in the hole. And so he goes about the business of reflecting that reality found in Psalm 118, verse 6, which says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You've heard about the person who has prayed, Lord, get me out of here, and I will serve you. And some of us think, oh, that's a great prayer to pray. Well, it's not, actually. It's a faithless prayer. Lord, let me serve you wherever I am. And he goes from grunge to glory. In the hole, the prisoners came and went. One day, the cupbearer to Pharaoh and the chief baker joined Joseph and his companions in the grim and the, gr and the grime and the grunge of the dungeon. Now, we're not told exactly why they're there, but we can guess that it's Pharaoh's meal wasn't quite up to standard one day, and so off to prison they go. But we do know something, and that is that they're not there by a mere accident, serving at His Majesty's pleasure. Ultimately, it wasn't the king of Egypt who put them there. It's the sovereign king of the universe who was quietly and purposefully working out his hidden plan for Joseph's life. And there is a completely unpredictable sequence of events about to unfurl very soon in this story that will place Joseph in a position of authority whereby he will save his family from starvation. He will play a crucial part in the divine plan of salvation, first for the Jews and then also for us as Gentiles. And so much of God's purpose for Israel in Egypt foreshadows the gospel message that is to come to the whole world. And despite the unjust, harsh treatment, Joseph trusted that God one day would fulfill his word. Just stop and think about that for a moment. These two guys in prison for something they've done to offend Pharaoh, they have a dream. Why was Joseph in prison? Oh, oh yeah. I remember when I was 17, I had a dream. Um, and I told my brothers and my family about that dream. Hmm. Best stay quiet on this one, yeah? But he doesn't. He says, so why are you guys looking so down in the dumps? Well, we had dreams last night, and there's no one to interpret them. <laughs> well, no point looking at me. I know nothing about dreams. Could easily been a response. But Joseph says, given the glory to God, don't interpretations belong to the Lord? And he interprets what is about to happen very immediately to his two cellmates. And even though his dream interpretation comes true and the cupbearer was released and the baker hanged, Joseph is still left in prison. And, you know, I put this in because I, I'm sure this, this is for many of us. Have you ever questioned, even as a God-fearing Christian, why others seem to benefit from the blessing that you so desperately need? Others benefit from the blessing that you so desperately need. You know, maybe your relative is sick and you pray and someone else's relative gets healed. Maybe you're unemployed and you pray and someone else gets a job. Maybe you're looking for that recognition for the service and work that you've done, but someone else is promoted over you. Joseph is in the hole 
and he wants to get out of it. He's the one who gives God the glory and interprets it the dream, and yet he's the one who's left languishing. But we see him go from that place of humility to honor. Joseph was just a very young man, age 17, when his brother's treachery resulted in him being sold as a slave and carried down to Egypt. For 13 years, he worked hard. He was falsely accused, including attempted rape. Even though he had kept himself morally pure, he ended up in a smelly hall of a prison where, despite his exemplary behavior and kindness to others, he suffers further rejection. That's got to add injury to insult. And yet, he remains committed to God and continues to trust his hidden plan. I think that's an exhortation for you and me tonight. I think it's also a foreshadowing of a picture of something that we'll see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejected by his family, maybe that's you. Sold for the price of a slave, well, maybe not any of us here tonight, but you never know. Abused by those he came to help. Betrayed and forgotten. And yet, in the Lord Jesus Christ's case, one before whom every knee will one day bow and confess that he is Lord, a Savior to you and me when we surrender our lives completely to him. Amen.